Take a copy of the scriptures and let us turn to uh, Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians. Uh, not 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, excuse me. <clears throat> I was thinking of the Lord's Supper message that you uh, taught this morning, Brad. I was thinking of Corinthians in the, in the supper. But 1 Timothy, let us return to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll pick up where we left off last week. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and our text is uh, verses 14 through 16. 1 Timothy 3, beginning of verse 14, and our message is the second part of the church, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Verse 14. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Verse 16, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Our Father, we pray again for the help and work of your spirit. I pray that he would rest upon me as I speak. I pray, Father, for his anointing. I pray that you would be with us. You would cause us all to hear your word your spirit would give us understanding of it and you would strengthen, Father, your people by it, to believe it, to receive it, and you would come in power and save sinners. So we pray for your blessing upon the reading and the exposition of the scriptures. By your grace and for your glory, we pray and ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. If you remember last week, we entered into this, these closing verses of chapter 3. And so we're making headway, but we will, we will look at this this Sunday, next Sunday. And then I'm going to be gone for just a little while. And then when I come back, we'll enter into chapter 4. Into chapter 4. But what we've seen here is that in these opening verses or these these closing verses, what I mean in this chapter, this is really the focal point of this letter. Uh, this is the theme of it. Uh, this idea and thought that he writes. Notice verse verse 14 and 15. He writes so that they that Timothy that the church at Ephesus that Christians may know how to, they are to conduct themselves, how they are to behave themselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God in the pillar in the ground of truth. Verse 15. If you remember, Paul was apparently delayed in his coming to Ephesus and God in his wise providence Use that opportunity for Paul to pen these, these words, these inspired words that become, as we mentioned, the 15th book of the New Testament. 
And so Paul writes, he says in verse 15, these things I write, and these things are what he's written so far concerning conduct in the house of God, uh, confronting false teachers, the qualifications for leadership, and what he will continue to write in the coming chapters concerning the last days and also life in the local church. If you remember from last week, Paul is writing and he is equipping the next generation of pastors like Timothy. Timothy was his true son in the faith. You remember that in chapter one? He's writing to not only the next generation and generations after for pastors, the overseers, the elders of the churches, but also for the churches of the future. And as we saw, as Paul would write and commend these words as he's training and writing these words to the young pastor, Timothy. There is a generational aspect that Paul understands. And there is a global aspect that he understands. He's, his thinking, if you remember, is shaped by the coming of Christ. We see that in verse 16 that we'll look at next week. By the person of Christ, the work of Christ. And it's deep-rooted in God's redemptive promises that began in the book of Genesis, Genesis 3.15, with the seed of the woman that continues to unfold through the Old Testament to the promise made to Abraham that he would be a blessing to the nations and that finds it now in that command of Christ himself, the seed of the woman who would come, who would defeat the enemy, and who would grant and give his church, command his church, the apostles in particular, the commission to go into all the world. And so we are reminded to follow scripture last week and to follow the model and the words of the apostle here of this global and generational aspect of the life and mission of the church. And so we were to realize that we are to continue in prayer. We are to be patient as God's people. We are to be committed to the global effort and to the generational effort. And so we are commit ourselves to prayer, to finances, to time, and to labor to these ends. And so we saw in verses 14 and 15 last week the conduct of the manner, the manner or order of the church. You remember that? When I say manner, look at verse 15. These things I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself. When I say manner, I mean the conduct, uh, the behavior of the church as we see in verse 15. And we saw in these three verses, we, I used three M's uh, to describe it. The manner of the church and the order of the church, the mission of the church, which we're going to see this morning and next week, the message of the church in verse 16. But again, just wrapping up things from last week, considering the manner of life in the church. Remember in chapter 1, in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, where Paul said, As I urge you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables or endless genealogies, which causes, which cause disputes, rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Part of the manner and conduct and behavior of the church 
is that they were to continue to combat false doctrine, false teaching. In this case, you remember, it was no other doctrine. The word we get from that is heterodoxy. And, and that which is not the truth, a, a false doctrine, no other doctrine. And they were to teach apostolic doctrine. We see in Acts 2.42, the early church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And so the manner of life in the church is to continue to teach and instruct the truth of God's word apostolic doctrine, to teach no other doctrine. And there was, as we begin to see, an apostolic order concerning the gathered church. Not only its instruction and teaching, but its way of life. These things are not left up for grabs. They're not up for discussion in the sense that we can modify them as we see fit or add to them as we want to, but they are to be uh, ordered according to God's word. There's an apostolic order concerning the life of the early church. We've already seen that the men in chapter 2 are to be qualified men that lead. They are to be set apart by the flock as elders or overseers, and they are to serve the church as shepherds. And then there were those men that we saw in verses uh, in the second part of that uh, of, of this section, verses eight through thirteen. Those men whose primary function is service, which are deacons. We saw even before this in chapter two, not only life concerning uh, worship, but the men and women of the church are to understand their roles, and the conduct of the men and women are to be according to, if you remember, the created order. And that touched upon the roles of the men and women in everyday life, but especially in the life of the church. In chapter 2, we saw this in verses 8 through 15. So we move from the manner of the church, the conduct of the church, to now this morning to the mission of the church. Look at verse 15 again. Verse 15, the mission of the church. But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself. And then he uses three descriptions, three descriptions of the church. Notice this. The house of God, one. Two, the church of the living God. And three, he describes the church as the pillar and ground of the truth. These descriptions speak to us of identity of the church and of the mission of the church. God's household, the church of the living God, and the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, it's not uncommon in our day for people to have a low view or unbiblical understanding of the church. And so this morning, as we look at the apostolic word and his description of the church, Let's listen closely, let's learn, and let's receive the truth of God's word concerning the church and its mission. And so let's begin in verse 15 with the first description and learn from this how the apostle describes the church and how it speaks to its mission and identity. Verse 15, verse 15, he describes the church, notice this, as the household or house of God. Some of your translations will have it a little different. It's the typical word for house or household. It's oikos, it, and it's house or household. He's been using this word, 
been using this word in this chapter already when he would speak of the qualifications for the overseers, the elders, and the deacons. You remember that? Look at verse 4 of chapter 3. Verse 4. Here in the qualifications of the overseers, the bishops, the elders, it is to be one who rules his own what? House well, his household well. Same Greek word. Having a children in submission with all reverence. Verse 5, he says, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, there's the word again. Same underlying word. How will he take care of the church of God? And then for deacons, for deacons, same, same qualification, verse 12, chapter 3, verse 12, let deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses, houses well. So, <clears throat> so immediately, I think we can suggest that just as those in church leadership are to rule or manage their households well, the members of God's household, especially the overseers, the elders, the people of God are to conduct themselves and live according to the manner that the head of the household orders. And the head of the house, in this case, is God, is God. Now, we have this household language here. But there's more than just what we see here concerning the households of the overseers and the deacons. There's more than just basic household language. Because when we, when we connect and link together all three of these descriptors, when they're held together, it's evident that Paul is using language from the Old Testament that speaks of the Old Testament temple. The Old Testament temple. The language, house of God. House of God. is found throughout the Old Testament. For example, Nehemiah 13, 4. 2 Chronicles chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And there you'll find in many places, sprinkled throughout the Old Testament, not only language, house of God, but also, like in 2 Chronicles 4, 11 and 12, there's even language of pillar and foundation used. Like the, 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 the pillars of the temple, the foundation of the, the temple, the ground. Now that's interesting. And in the New Testament, in the New Testament, you will find, again, this language is picked up again. It's found in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, 1 Peter, and the Revelation, where the church is referred to as the temple, the temple of God. The believer, the believer that has, the, the individual that has placed faith in Christ, 
receiving his gospel savingly, resting and trusting in the, in the work of Christ for the forgiveness of sins, for his sins, resting, trusting that the Christ who died for his sins, who was buried and risen from the dead, is now seated at the right-hand side of the Father. The scriptures teach that the believer is united to Jesus Christ. We're united to Jesus Christ, who is the true temple of God. And the church corporately is now the temple of the living God. Watch this language. Listen closely. 2 Corinthians 6.16. Watch this. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you, now watch this, the you there is in the plural. Like how we say, if you're from the South, you all, y'all. For you are the temple of the living God, he says. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, those closing words there, that is the overarching covenantal promise from Genesis to Revelation. You'll find that expression, I will be their God and they will be my people again and again, connected to the overarching aspect of the covenants as they are set forth and as they find the fulfillment and reality in the person and work of Jesus. But he describes the church as the temple of the living God. He does it again in 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 17. He says, do you, again, plural, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? And if anyone defies the temple of God, God would destroy him for the temple of God is holy. Which temple? There it is. You, plural. There's the plural. You are. We should understand that the later day promise and fulfillment of the temple is found in the person of Christ and in his people, the church. Again, 1 Peter 2, 4, listen to this. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, and we actually hear of the materials the materials that make up, that construct the new, the, the new Testament temple, the later day temple. He tells us of the materials coming to him, Peter says, as to a living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. Verse five, you as living stones, not dead stones, living stones are built up are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Amen. So the, the shadow, the picture 
of the Old Testament temple, Arianic priesthood and sacrifices now finds its reality and fulfillment in the person of Christ and the people that he, have re he has redeemed that now form the New Testament church. We are the later day temple of God. We are the church of the living God. Now, let me be clear something. Let me be clear about something. He is not saying here, you are like the temple. He says, you are the temple of the living God. There are eschatological implications for what I'm saying here. So the people of God are the house of God. He has given us his word and his son is the head of the house. And he's given us his word to direct and guide our steps and how we are to conduct ourselves in this house. Then there's a second descriptor that he uses. Notice verse 15 again. How you conduct yourself in the house of God. And then number two, he calls us the church, the church of the living God, the church of the living God. Notice that. That's the second way he describes us. First, the word church that he uses there, the word church. The house of God is described as the church. Underneath that is the word that many of you are familiar with. Some of you know it's the Greek word, ecclesia. Ecclesia. This can be translated as church, congregation, assembly. In the New Testament, it is the word to describe an assembly of Christians gathered for worship. That's why we have the church at Ephesus, the church at Corinth, the church at Rome. You see that? You should think of the church Catholic, the church universal of all believers that are united to Jesus by faith, by the indwelling spirit, manifest itself visibly and locally in concrete con in congregations. The church at Rome, the church at Corinth, the church here at Covenant in Warrington. Do you see that? And this church, this assembly, this gathered congregation that he uses here to describe God's gathered people, you will find throughout the Bible that they gather in the Old Testament when the people of God gather, assemble together, or in the New Testament when the church gathers or assembles together, it is for one preeminent purpose. And what is that? It is worship. It is worship. They gather to worship. Stephen, the first martyr of the church in Acts chapter 7, he calls the Old Testament congregation of Israel the church in the wilderness. The Old Testament congregation of Israel, the congregation of the Lord, the congregation of Yahweh, known as the Kahal, finds its fulfillment in the assembly of God, the church of God, the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus is Yahweh. 
And the central purpose of God gathering his people is for worship. So again, the basic meaning of the word is to assemble, to congregate, to, to, uh, to, to assemble together to worship God. And it does have a basic meaning of, of, of not only being called together, but the, the etymology of the word as God's chosen people. It, it's ek. Kalesia. It's 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 that we are at, we are the kaleo, the called, the called, and then the ek out of. We get the word exit from that to go out, to be called out, and so the church, as God's chosen people, have been called out of this world, out of darkness into light, out of the fallen mass of humanity, and have been united to Christ by faith. We are the church. We are the ecclesia, the called out. Again, we see this language in Peter again in 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So by God's gracious activity, by the spirit and word, we've been called out and we now assemble together as the ecclesia, as the church. And we gather to worship God. And in this case, notice it's the true God, the living God. Do you see it? Look at verse 15, which is the church of the living God. Now, let's consider the context here. The setting for the Ephesians, the city of Ephesus. It's home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple of Diana or Artemis. However, that temple that was dominant, predominant in that city, that they would walk by and see was a temple dedicated to no God, a false God. You remember the language of the Old Testament? Psalm 115. You find Isaiah does, uses it a lot, but listen to, the, listen to the psalmist in Psalm 115, beginning in verse 3, 3 through 8. Listen to this. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. Verse 5. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they murder, mutter through their throat. Those who make them, verse 8, are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. You see that? So... Dominant in this city is the temple of Diana, a false god, a false religion. And now Paul is telling, telling these Christians, 
But you, that is the house of Diana, a false god, but you are the house of God. That is the house of a, of a dead God, a no God. But your God is the true God, the living God, the living God. And again, Paul in other places will use this temple language to describe the people of God. And there's a reason for this. Watch this. This language of the, the house of God, which is the church of the living God. And he's going to slide into this, the pillar and the ground of truth. It, you, you can envision a, a t- the, the Old Testament temple or any temple. Again, listen to the language of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning of verse 19. Ephesians 2, verse 19. Now, therefore, you're no longer strangers and foreigners. He's speaking to the Gentiles there. You're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. You were at one time separate from the people of God. But now you've, you've been brought in. You've been grafted in. You've been adopted into the people of God. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, free or slave. We're all one now in Christ. And now you've been, you've been made a fellow citizen with the saints and members of the household of God. We've been adopted. There's the doctrine of adoption. Now watch this. Verse 20 having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So there's this foundation of the truth of God's word from the apostles and the prophets, which is the foundation, Christ a cornerstone. Verse 21, again, Ephesians 2, verse 21, in whom the whole building, what building? The temple of God, the household of God, in whom the whole building being fitted together, notice, here's the language, grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So the apostle is telling them that you reside in a city and there is this great wonder of the world, the temple of Diana. But that is no God. That is a false religion. But you... You Christians are the household of God. You are the people, the church, the called out people of of the living God, the true God. And you are the dwelling place of God. God at once dwelt in a temple made with hands in Israel and Jerusalem. But now Mount Zion is where the people of God is found, are found. You are the dwelling place of God. You are the temple of God. This is the language of Habakkuk when he would speak of the later days, that there would be a day that would come and that the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God that dwelt in the the temple there in Jerusalem, 
that in some way, somehow, it was going to be global. It was going to go to the nations. And Habakkuk in chapter 2, verse 14 said, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You can see in the New Testament that as churches, as the people of God are established and spreading and covering the earth in fulfillment of the Great Commission, generation after generation, and that global mission, they slowly are creeping and moving across the earth and reaching all peoples, and there the glory of God covers the earth. There are those places, those gatherings of God's people in homes and in church buildings and in caves and under a tree. It is there that is the dwelling place of God and the glory of God. Do you see that? And then watch this, the third description that he gives us. There in verse 15 of our text, 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. After he says, which is the church of the living God. Notice this descriptor, the pillar and ground of the truth, the pillar or bulwark of the truth. The church is the church of the living God. He, he who is truth himself. God, he who cannot lie, the son who is the way, the truth, and the life. Therefore, the church in its mission is to be that which declares, that teaches, that proclaims the truth. And the church is the pillar, the bulwark, the ground of the truth. The church stands upon and rests upon the foundation of the word, Ephesians 2.20, and the spirit that has led the church in the way of truth. And the church now upholds the truth like a pillar and proclaims it to the world. The, the, the message that it proclaims we're about to see in verse 16 next week. But this truth is upheld in the life of the church that it stands upon is found in the ministry primarily of the word. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 13, watch this. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 13, Paul will tell Timothy, till I come, give attention to what? to reading and to exhortation and to doctrine, to the apostolic doctrine, to teaching. That's the truth. The exposition of God's word, the proclamation of God's word. You see, in, in, the, in this context here, not only their setting in the city of Ephesus, but the church and that which Paul is confronting in this letter, in those opening verses, if you remember, the false teachers. The church stands against the false teachers and their stand and their teaching because the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. Verse 1 of chapter 4. We're going to be there soon. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will what? 
depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. What is, the, what is the pillar and the ground of truth against that end time, last days spread of false teaching and doctrine? What is it that will stand for the truth and proclaim the truth? The church of the living God. This speaks of our mission, doesn't it? It speaks of what we are to be, what we are to do. This speaks of our identity. And as we begin to talk about last week, what we are not called to do and be. Right? The church is to stand for the truth and to stand against that which is false. Our mission, our mission is of declaring truth, defending truth, preserving the truth. It is a mission of proclamation, right? A proclamation within the assembly and out into the world, right? It's not entertainment, right? It's not trying to be a celebrity, but it is the declaring and the proclamation of truth. Now listen, for leadership, for the leadership that we have now begun to walk through in these verses and how they are at the end of this section dealing with the qualification of overseers and of deacons, we're realizing now that when it comes to the mission of the church, the manner of conduct of the church, and now we're about to hear the message of the church next week, we are reminded here that leadership is to be as it, as it manages not only their own household, but as they labor in God's household, they are to teach and live faithfully according to the instructions that they've been given from the prophets and the apostles. So the conduct, the manner of life in the church, what we are to believe and the method, the way that we are to carry out this mission, our worship and going into the world is instructed by the head of the church, the head of the household, which is God. And where do we find this instruction? Someone tell me. The word of God. The preserved truth. We don't have to sit around in a meeting and make this stuff up. We, we, it's been given to us. We read it. We study it. We learn it. Secondly, not only do we find this for leadership, life, conduct, worship directed by God, but for the entire church. This letter written to Timothy would have been read to the congregation at Ephesus. This letter has been preserved and we find it in the canon of scripture. It's not for ministers and our eldership here, but for the entire church body. We are to understand our mission and the method of life for the church here. We are to take heed to these words. However, for leadership, the great responsibility that is laid upon those who have been given the rule in the household of God, the judgment that they will stand. Did they obey their master? Did they faithfully instruct God's word? You see the great responsibility that's there? 
That's why I think we find this at the end of this chapter in this section as it related to overseers and deacons. Great responsibility that's laid at the feet and upon leadership. But again, in closing, we're out of time here, but I want to say this again. We're reminded here by the language that we find here that as God's people, we are to conduct ourselves in the house of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth, and that these very descriptors remind us of our identity and our mission of who we are as the people of God, what we are to do, and it tells us what we are not to do or be. It is primarily a ministry, a proclamation, a proclamation of God's truth. In Mark chapter 16, Jesus and that in Mark's gospel of the in his rendition of the Great Commission, he says it this way. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And so we are to follow the instructions of our master as found in Scripture. We're to proclaim it and pay close attention to it, to life and doctrine in the life of the church and as we go into the world, to go into all the world and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, first... 1 Timothy 3.15 tells us what the church is to be, what its mission is to be. It tells us what we are not to be. Not entertainment, not pop psychology, not social justice, but we are to be people of God's word and truth. You remember in verse 15 of chapter 1, that gospel message that he calls the church to proclaim to the nations is found. When Paul would say this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so all of our doctrine and life is grounded in the reality of Christ and his glorious gospel. The message we are to proclaim that Jesus Christ, the son of God, died for sinners he has made us his people in church. He's redeemed us by his blood. And so we give praise to God. We assemble together to worship him. We come to the table this morning and we partake of the bread and the wine as if you were in the first hour, you heard the lesson about the Lord's Supper. It is this that reminds us according to God's word of the promise of the gospel that is for us that eat and drink of Christ that is found here in this sign and symbol. And so we praise God for it. We're reminded of it. We're strengthened by it in an ongoing way. If you're here this morning and you are not a believer, you've never trusted in Christ by faith, relying and trusting in the gospel of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. We call upon you, turn from your sins and turn to Christ by faith and receive him as Lord and Savior. As we come to the supper this morning, we invite you to come and to eat and drink. If you're with us this morning and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, 
You've been baptized by water in the name of the triune God. You're are a member of a, a Bible-believing church in good standing and that you're not under church discipline. Or maybe you're looking for a new church home. You're in transition. We invite you in Christ's name to eat of this bread and to drink of this cup with us. But if you have not received Christ as Savior and Lord, if you have not been baptized in the name of the triune God, we ask that you refrain from partaking of the supper. Do not partake of the supper, but observe it with the eye. Notice the bread. Notice the cup, the wine. And listen closely to the words concerning the table. And we pray that God in his grace might reveal more of Christ and the gospel to you. Let us pray.